Welcome to Hub History, the show that brings you fascinating stories from Boston history. This is episode 24, The Parkman Murder, Boston's Trial of the 19th Century. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to talk about the Parkman murder. George Parkman was a medical doctor and a prominent member of Boston's Brahmin upper class. When he went missing just before Thanksgiving of 1849, no one could have believed that he would be murdered, dismembered, and partially burned. Soon, another prominent Brahmin, a professor at Harvard Medical School, would stand accused of his murder. The investigation was full of dramatic twists, and the trial had plenty of courtroom theatrics, with the gallows looming as a possible outcome. But before we talk about the mysterious and gruesome murder of Dr. George Parkman, it's time to find out what's coming up this week in Boston history. Monday is April 10th, and on April 10th, 1970, the Doors played two sets at Boston Arena, which we know today as Northeastern University's Matthews Arena. Singer Jim Morrison showed up drunk and just got drunker as the night went on. The second set ended when the promoter cut power to the PA, and Morrison was literally dragged off the stage as he screamed profanity into a hot microphone. Luckily for posterity, the show was recorded, and portions were released on their Absolutely Live album. In 2007, the entire show was released as a three-CD set, so you can hear the incoherent ramblings if you want to. We'll have the album cover and a link to a review of the show in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 024. While John was away serving in the Continental Congress, trying to get them to declare an independency, Abigail Adams wrote to him on April 11, 1776. I find it necessary to be the directress of our husbandry and farming. Hands are so scarce that I have not been able to procure one, and a multiplicity of farming business pouring in upon us. In this dilemma, I have taken Belcher into pay, and must secure him for the season, as I know not what better course to steer. I hope in time to have the reputation of being as good a farmeress as my partner has of being a good statesman. I think she eventually lived up to that ambition. If you've listened to our show in the past, you know that she was operating the farm pretty much on her own by the mid to late 1790s. Wednesday is April 12th, and on April 12th, 1775, a British captain in General Gage's Regiment of Foot wrote to the British Secretary of War, begging him to intervene with the King so he might be excused from a deployment to Boston. As I cannot, without reproach from my own conscience, consent to bear arms against my fellow subjects in America, in what, to my weak discernment, is not a clear cause, and as it seems now to be finally resolved that the 22nd Regiment is to go upon the American service, I desire your Lordship to lay me in the most dutiful manner at His Majesty's feet and humbly beg that I may be permitted to retire. Your Lordship will easily conceive the regret and mortification I feel at being necessitated to quit the military profession, which has been that of my ancestors for many generations to which I have been bred almost from my infancy, to which I have devoted the study of my life, and to perfect myself, in which I have sought instruction and service in whatever part of the world they were to be found. I have delayed this to the last moment, lest any wrong construction should be given to a conduct which is influenced only by the purest motives. I complain of nothing. I love my profession, and should think it highly blamable to quit any course of life in which I might be useful to the public, 
so long as my constitutional principles and my notions of honor permitted me to continue in it. A footnote says that the secretary declined to pass his request to the king, and the captain replied that he might do as he pleased with the letter, but that he would not go to America. We'll have a link to this remarkable letter in this week's show notes. As we heard in a previous episode, we were very worried about British ships hanging out on Boston Harbor in April 1776. On the 13th, the legislature ordered that old ships should be sunk to block the channel. Resolved, that for the more effectually fortifying and securing the town and harbor of Boston, the committee already appointed for that purpose be, and they hereby are, directed and empowered to purchase a sufficient number of old ships or vessels and cause them to be sunk in the channel between the Middle Ground and Castle Rocks, so-called, in said harbor, for preventing any vessels of above 200 tons entering the same, and that the said committee execute said orders without loss of time and lay their accounts before this court for allowance. Friday is April 14th. On April 14th, Isabella Stewart was born. She would grow up to marry a man named Jack Gardner. Together, they would travel the world before settling back in Boston and building a palace known as Fenway Court. Isabella, who was often referred to as Mrs. Jack, was attracting attention as a woman who was eccentric, original, the leader of the smart set, and one of the seven wonders of Boston. Not at all what was expected of a proper Victorian Boston lady. She would become the greatest patron of the arts in Boston for generations, and after her death, Fenway Court would become the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. Her personal motto is carved over the door. C'est mon plaisir. It is my pleasure. We'll have a link to a brief bio of Isabella Stewart Gardner in this week's show notes. On April 15, 1861, President Lincoln called on the northern states to provide 75,000 troops in response to the shelling of Fort Sumter in South Carolina. That afternoon, handbills went up around Boston, and by 11 that night, 67 men had enlisted. Calling on the state's revolutionary heritage, the initial volunteers for the Union called themselves the Minutemen of 61. They formed the core of the 11th Volunteer Infantry Regiment. The unit would eventually fight at Bull Run, Chancellorsville, Gettysburg, Cold Harbor, and many other large battles and small engagements. They served through the end of the war before finally being mustered out on July 14, 1865. We'll link to an account of the unit's history and a list of their battles in the show notes this week. Finally, Sunday is April 16th. Boston Light on Little Brewster Island just celebrated its tercentennial. The first lighthouse on the island was built in 1716 as America's first light station. During the Siege of Boston, it was burned twice by Patriots and finally blown up by the retreating British. The replacement lighthouse became the last American light station to be automated on April 16, 1998. Though the basic operation of the light is now automated, there is still a lighthouse keeper. Since 2003, it's been a civilian rather than a member of the Coast Guard. Sally Snowman is the first woman to be keeper of Boston Light, which is now the last manned, or in this case, womaned, lighthouse in the U.S. service. Find information about Boston Light and all of our historic anniversaries in the show notes this week at hubhistory.com slash 024. And now, let's set the stage for our story of Dr. Parkman's final days. George Parkman was born to Samuel Parkman and Sarah Rogers in 1790. 
Samuel was at one time the wealthiest man in Boston, and George was the ninth of eleven children. George was somewhat sickly as a child, which inspired him to pursue a career in medicine, which began with an enrollment at Harvard University as a freshman when he was just 15 years old. George took an interest in mental health and the poor treatment of those in asylums. He believed that patients should be treated in residential institutions where they could pursue hobbies and live enriched lives. And though he was born into the upper class, he spent time treating the poor in South Boston, developing a wider worldview than some of his colleagues, and perhaps gaining the compassion that he would later sometimes display as a landlord. Dr. Parkman committed funding and expertise to founding a modern mental health hospital, but the trustees did not ultimately appoint him to a leadership role. Then at the age of 34, his father passed away and he found himself at the head of the Parkman business and real estate empire. It included towns in Ohio and Maine and extensive land holdings in Boston. It was Parkman who donated the land from his extensive West End holdings to relocate Harvard Medical School from Cambridge to Boston, near where the Liberty Hotel, formerly Charles Street Jail, sits today. George became a well-known figure in the streets of Boston, which he walked daily collecting his rents. He was a tall and lanky fellow with a protruding chin, a very recognizable figure in his top hat. He was reported to have a net worth of $500,000 in 1846, which is roughly equal to $12.5 million in today's money. But despite his wealth, he was too thrifty to own a horse. Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. said that he abstained while others indulged. He walked while others rode. He worked while others slept. Fanny Longfellow, wife of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, referred to him as the good-natured Don Quixote. As a landlord and a moneylender, George was generous to the extent that if someone needed money, he was happy to lend it out. If a tenant was sick or lost their job, he had no issues waiting to collect a payment. But he was very firm on interest and payment schedules. It wasn't unheard of for him to get heated over a financial matter. Sometime in 1842, Parkman made a loan of $400, approximately $10,000 in 2016 money, to one of his colleagues, a professor John Webster. The two men met as students at Harvard Medical College. Both came from Brahmin families, but Webster sorely lacked Parkman's financial management skills. After failing at running a medical practice, Webster became a chemistry professor at the medical school, where he was given his own lab and free reign to pursue research. Unfortunately, his professor's salary was not enough to keep his wife and four daughters in the lifestyle of their peers. He often sold tickets to his experiments to supplement his income and still could not make ends meet. He also made really rash purchases, including a mastodon skeleton that he was pretty sure Harvard would reimburse him for. They did not. But the skeleton can be found in Harvard's Museum of Comparative Zoology today. And so he found himself in the awkward position of being in debt to his former classmate and behind on his payments. Not one to excuse lateness, Dr. Parkman would follow Webster around as he ran his errands, repeating over and over again, When will you be ready for me, Dr. Webster? He would attend Webster's lectures, sitting in the back row and tapping his walking stick impatiently on the floor. He made sure that everyone in town knew that Webster could not make good on his debts. And then the plot thickened. As collateral for the loan, Webster had used his mineral cabinet, a fairly valuable collection of minerals, stones, and gems. Using it as collateral means that if he failed to repay the loan, Parkman would be compensated with this collateral item 
On November 23rd, 1849, yes, that's seven years later, with interest now ballooning to a debt of what would be $60,000 in 2016, Parkman learned that Webster used this same collection as collateral on another loan, and he was furious. He immediately set off from his house to confront Webster in his lab. One thing to know about Parkman is that he was very time-oriented. He followed the same schedule and walked the same route every day as he went to work and checked on his tenant buildings. He was well-known, and people would remark that you could tell the time by where you were when you saw him. So when he failed to turn up for his appointments that afternoon, and when he failed to return home to his wife in the evening, his family immediately knew that something was seriously wrong. Because the Parkmans were such a prominent family, the police immediately began investigating. What they found was that Dr. Parkman was last seen entering the medical college that day at about 1 p.m. The next day, Professor Webster stopped by the Parkman home. He'd been friends with the Parkmans for many years, and they expected that he had come to offer condolences and words of support. But he didn't. He came to tell them that he had seen Dr. Parkman at about 1.15 the day before. He told them that he had paid off the debt, so that if Dr. Parkman was robbed or kidnapped or worse on his way to the courthouse to clear the debt, he was no longer liable for the debt. The Parkmans, understandably, were very put off by this, and they immediately reported the incident to the police. Over the next few days, the police posted missing person notices and investigated the disappearance, and really the whole city was looking for Dr. Parkman, motivated by a $3,000 reward for any information. Though alerted to Professor Webster's rude behavior, there was no serious thought that a man of his status could be involved in the case. Instead, the police started to eye a janitor at the college, Ephraim Littlefield. The good janitor also moonlighted as a resurrection man, procuring and selling cadavers to doctors and students. So he didn't have much credibility, and he and his wife decided that they'd better do their own investigation to clear his name. The Littlefields lived in the basement of the college next to Webster's lab. On the day of the disappearance, Ephraim overheard an argument between Parkman and Webster, and this didn't sit well with him. And so he started to put together the series of odd incidents that followed. Webster had been acting irrationally and had angry outbursts at Littlefield. He apologized and gave him a turkey for Thanksgiving, and Professor Webster was not a generous man. Five days later, on November 28th, Littlefield watched Webster from under the lab door, seeing him move from the furnace to the fuel closet and back, making eight trips. The furnace was burning so hard that the wall on the other side was hot to the touch. And when Webster left, Littlefield let himself into the room through a window. He found that the kindling barrels were nearly empty, though he had recently filled them. And there were wet spots that tasted like acid in odd places. And so Ephraim and his wife thought to themselves, if it was Webster that killed Parkman, what might he have done with the body? And so Ephraim goes down into the basement of the building, and he found the spot along a brick hallway where on the other side of the wall, the privy chamber from Webster's lab emptied into the sewer vault. Littlefield had a mortar pick and a crowbar, and with a lot of effort, he began to pry bricks out of the wall. Eventually, he got enough of a hole that he could shine a lantern into the sewer, and it took his eyes a minute to adjust to the light, but eventually he could see what he thought was a human pelvis. He then went to notify a trusted faculty member, Dr. Bigelow. 
The authorities first tasked Littlefield with cataloging the dissection room and specimens to make sure none were missing. Then, several men went to the vault. They decided that the man with the longest arms would go into the privy and hand out the remains. He handed out the pelvis, the right thigh, and the lower left leg. They then conducted a search of Webster's lab. In the furnace, they found what appeared to be a jawbone and teeth, and then they noticed a very foul odor coming from the back of a closet. They pulled out a trunk that appeared to be the source of the smell, broke the lock, opened it up, and found a very hairy and partially burned human torso with the other thigh stuffed inside. Fortunately, they were in a medical college, so they laid out the parts on a lab table. With rough estimates of height and weight, they were in the ballpark of Dr. Parkman, so they notified the family that a body had been found. Mrs. Parkman came to the college and instructed the police to look for birthmarks on his lower back. Using this information, they confirmed that they had found Dr. Parkman's remains. Webster was arrested for the murder of Dr. Parkman and almost immediately attempted suicide with a strychnine pill. Surviving, he entered a plea of not guilty. The Brahmins were reluctant to face the evidence. Fanny Longfellow wrote, Boston is, at this moment, in sad suspense about the fate of poor Dr. Parkman. You will see by the papers what dark horror overshadows us like an eclipse. Of course, we cannot believe Dr. Webster guilty, bad as the evidence looks. Many suspect the janitor, who's known to be a bad man and to have wished for the reward offered for Dr. Parkman's body. He could make things appear against the doctor, having bodies under his control. I trust our minds will soon be relieved, but meanwhile, they are soiled by new details continually. I went to see poor Mrs. Webster on Sunday, the day after her husband's arrest, but of course was not admitted. What a terrible blight upon her life and that of the girls. The mere suspicion, for I cannot believe anything can be proved. On December 6th, thousands lined the street for Parkman's funeral, and approximately 5,000 people toured the crime scene. The 12-day trial began on March 19, 1850, presided over by Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court Chief Justice Lemuel Shaw. For Boston, this was, without a doubt, the trial of the century. The Boston police sold tickets that would get you into the courtroom for 10 minutes. Over the course of the 12 days, they sold 40,000 tickets, with a total of 60,000 people witnessing some part of the proceedings. The trial presented a pretty significant hurdle. You can't prove murder without a body. And in the era before DNA testing, forensic evidence, and everything else we see on CSI today, it was really hard to identify a body without a head. Everything hinged on the testimony of Dr. Parkman's dentist, Dr. Nathan Keep. Dr. Parkman had a very large, prominent jawline. And recently, Dr. Keep had a terrible time fitting him for dentures and had made a mold of the inside of his mouth. While on the witness stand, he took his mold, fitted into the jawbone found in Webster's furnace, and declared it a perfect fit. And you can imagine that at that time, when pretty much the only evidence that you ever had was testimony, this was extremely convincing. Before the jury began deliberations, Chief Justice Shaw gave an unusual instruction that had a monumental impact on the criminal justice system. The standard in murder cases in the mid-19th century was absolute certainty of guilt. Thus, the prosecution would have to prove conclusively that the body was Parkman's, 
that Webster had killed him and had killed him with the intent to do so. Instead, Shaw instructed the jury that they only needed to find beyond a reasonable doubt that the body was Parkman's. And this, of course, is the standard that we use today. Webster was found guilty after only three hours of deliberation. And on April 1st, Judge Shaw sentenced, you, John W. Webster, be removed from this place and detained in close custody in the prison of this county and thence taken to the place of execution and there be hung by the neck until you are dead. And may God, in his infinite goodness, have mercy on your soul. This is when it starts to get interesting. Webster's lawyer appealed to Governor George Briggs for a pardon, but Briggs was a lay preacher who didn't wish to be seen as bowing to Brahmin pressure, displaying scruples we perhaps wish our politicians had today. Additionally, the year before, a black sailor named Washington Good was hanged for the murder of a fellow black sailor based on circumstantial evidence. Governor Briggs felt that pardoning Webster after refusing to pardon Good would have undermined his reputation. According to the Fall River Weekly News, if any delays, misgivings, or symptoms of mercy are manifested, the gibbeted body of Washington Good will be paraded before the mind's eye of His Excellency. If he relents in this case, though the entire population of the state petitioned for a remission of the sentence, Governor Briggs will forfeit all claim to public respect as a high-minded, honorable, and impartial chief magistrate. He can do one of two things and retain his character as a man and a public servant. Resign his office, or let the law take its course. In 1850, both the people and the government were interested in equal sentencing for a black man and a rich white man. In June, Webster shocked everybody by confessing to the crime. He killed Dr. Parkman, but he said he did it in self-defense. He explained that when Parkman confronted him, he was in a rage, completely out of control, and that he attacked Webster. Defending himself, Webster hit Parkman in the head with a poker from the fireplace, apparently killing him almost instantly. Webster explained that he then panicked, so he cut up the body, tried to dissolve it with acid, and when that didn't work, he burned several of the limbs. When he ran out of firewood, he dumped the rest down the privy, except for the torso, which didn't fit. Still, the governor would not offer a pardon. Through the gossip of former friends, it came out that Webster, as a young man living in London, liked to attend public executions. With irony, Webster was hanged on August 30th, 1850. After the execution, Mrs. Parkman, in an act of great compassion, contributed a large sum to a trust fund to care for Webster's widow and four daughters, and encouraged the other Brahmins to contribute as well. She then turned her efforts to philanthropy, preferring to give away money rather than continue to earn it. The scandal of one Boston Brahmin killing another became international news. Twenty years later, when Charles Dickens made his first trip to Boston, he asked to be taken to the medical college to see the place where Parkman's bones were found. If Dickens was still alive today, he would totally listen to this episode. You can learn more about the murder of George Parkman and the trial of John White Webster in this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 024. We'll have links to illustrations of Parkman, Webster, and Littlefield, a short documentary called Murder at Harvard that gives an overview of the case and cast of characters. 
We'll also link to an app you can download for a Beacon Hill walking tour that explains the timeline of events. And we'll have an image of the reward notice in which you'll note that the funds were posted by Robert Gould Shaw, grandfather of THE Robert Gould Shaw. We'll also have a chart of the remains found at the medical college and a sketch of the crime scene. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. We're at hubhistory on Twitter and at facebook.com slash hubhistory. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the contact us link. While you're on this site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with a show about the court martial of Paul Revere.